So Stephanie, let's get started. Can you read for us verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 3? Okay. Verse 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Yeah, thank you. So this is the answer to the question of what do we do with all of this, right? Like we said, some people's answer is, okay, now that you have a faithful and merciful high priest, then it doesn't matter anymore, right? But the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider, consider, right? Consider him, consider him. And by consider him, it's what we talked about last week, meaning meditate on Christ, meditate on the richness. Like if, if the gospel sounds too good to be true, for example, then it means that it calls for paying close attention. What is it about man that made God come all the way, right? That's how David used to handle these mysteries. He was the one who prophetically asked in Psalm 8, what we looked at last week, what is man? That, that you are mindful of him, that you take care of him, that you visit him. That's what the writer is saying that we should do. That we should lay hold of the truth until it lay hold, until it lays hold of us. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Lay hold on what we're saying until it becomes part of you, it becomes part of your arsenal. The reason why he's starting like this is because subsequently, as we're going to see, he's going to challenge our concept of believing. Because he's going to say that believing is not about confession. And this is similar to what we, what we saw James do, right? When we saw the book of James. That believing is not about confession. Believing is about responding. That you can confess many things. But if, if you're not able to respond, if the fruit of your confession cannot be found in your life, then you have every reason to doubt the confession. And so you need to pay attention to what you have heard until the thing you say you believe provokes the right response from you. If it is provoking the completely opposite response, it means that you have not really believed. So he moves believing away from creed, creed, C-R-E-E-D, to deed, <laughs> D-E-E-D. When we started this study, we said that this book is going to challenge our regular Pentecostal view of what it means to, to um, believe in Christ, right? If you just confess something, if you just say something with your mouth. But chapter 3 is going to challenge that view. And that's why he's saying consider. Because believing is supposed to provoke a response of faith. I don't know if you remember in, in Jesus' discussion with some of the Pharisees who came to him, right? Um, and, and we're asking him about, you know, who he is, where he's coming from in John chapter 6, verse 28 to 29. Let me just read it very quickly to just buttress this point that we're going to soon open up. John chapter 6, verse 28. So some people came to Jesus and Jesus discerned that they were looking for food, right? And he said, you're following me because you saw 5,000 fed with five loaves and two fish. And you've done the math and you've said to yourself that with this guy on the scene, we're not going to have need for food. And in fact, it appears that they were quite happy to believe in him as the 
as the new Moses, just on the basis of food, because of course Israel has a very strong connection to, to miracle food because of the manna. And so in verse 27, Jesus said, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. Now, if you read this, you might think, okay, if this is the work of God, then it's very easy. But if you continue reading the verse, you realize that these people didn't even pass this test, right? Right in the midst of this conversation, they turned back from Jesus, meaning that believing is not necessarily as easy as, as you know, our modern Christianity has made it look. Jesus calls it a work. He refers to believing on him as a work. What kind of work is that? It's what we said last week, right? That there's something to do. It requires careful and prayerful meditation and consideration of who Jesus is and of what he means to us. Right? Because it's possible that you come to Christ and you, you come to Christ based on a certain idea, but it's necessary that you build on that if your believing is going to endure. So Jesus considers believing to be work. Right? And there's a certain kind of prayer that fosters believing. There's a certain kind of prayer that fosters believing. Jude, Jude showed us that, that prayer. Remember when we studied the book of Jude, he was talking about false teachers and false prophets. And he was saying, but you, beloved, I want you to, I want you, I want you to build up yourself on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. And when we looked at that, we said that that means praying in the language of the Spirit, praying in the burden of the Spirit, Praying with the help of the Spirit, praying by the utterance of the Spirit. It is Spirit-centered prayer that, that brings us to the place where our believing is sure. Right. Okay, he says that also at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 3, that we are partakers of the heavenly calling. Uh, so there is a calling that is going to expand on shortly. Um, and then he introduces a metaphor here, which is all his house, the house of God. So we are called to be part of the house of God. It's a calling. You know, we're already beginning to see the burden on the writer's heart that he's trying to show us the foundation of things. That God is essentially house hunting or was essentially house hunting when he decided to create man. He was looking for a resting place in the physical creation. And that's why he created you and I, so that Together, we could form his house. But that's going to come subsequently. But the main takeaway from these first two verses is that our response to the magnanimity of Christ is not to abuse his grace, but to consider a careful and prayerful consideration of who Jesus is and what he means to us. Okay, well, what are your thoughts on this one? Any questions so far or contributions? Can we, can we link this to that verse that says, looking unto Jesus, you know, the offer, as in this word, consider is what I'm particularly. Yeah, that's, that's what the entire book is about. If you've, 
if you've seen the first two chapters that we studied, that's where we arrived at. And that's how the writer is going to conclude the book, looking onto Jesus. He, he wants you to realize that hey, when Jesus came, God did the greatest and the best thing he could have done for you and I. And it is a mistake to look away from him and begin to drift back into the mosaic law. Because in this context, that's the particular problem he's dealing with here. Right? But in our context, it's possible for us to drift into so many things. And he's saying that there's nothing you're going to find that it's like Jesus. Okay. Sorry, Joshua. There's two things that have been given and conferred to Jesus. He's been described as the apostle. He's also been described as the high priest, as a high priest. This word apostle, I reckon this is the first time it's mentioned in, in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. um, so in this book, uh, can you just buttress it a bit for, yeah. you know, for sure. us? Thank you for bringing that up because I was actually planning to talk about it, but it didn't just come in at some point. So he's the apostle, right, of and high priest of our confession. Um, you know, some people believe that there's what they call cessation, cessation of spiritual gifts. Says some people even believe that miracles have stopped. I mean, I'm talking about Christians and theologians. Even believe that miracles have stopped happening, and that God has stopped appointing apostles. And when it comes to the topic of apostles, the reason why they hold such a view is just a a misunderstanding of the meaning of the word apostle, right? An apostle is a messenger, it's a sent one. So there are different cadres of apostles. Christ is, the, is, at, is, is at the apex of the pyramid, if you like. He's the highest one that God sent, sent to humanity, right? But we also know that Christ appointed the people that the book of Revelation calls the apostles of the Lamb. And there are 12 of them. And as powerful as Paul is or was, he's not part of that 12. Right? But he was an apostle. And he was not the only other apostle in the New Testament. So once we stop over glorifying the meaning of the word, even though the office itself is a high office, but the meaning of the word, once we stop over glorifying it, we realize that God has always called apostles. And he will always call apostles. He will still always call apostles. So Moses was an apostle. He was sent to Israel. And that's why you, you're going to see the writer comparing um, Christ with Moses because Moses was a sent one, was an apostle. But he wants them in that comparison to see that Moses was, was, was a forerunner apostle. He was pointing to a higher reality. Everything Moses was, was dealing with and presenting was shadows of things to come. So that's what it simply means, that Christ was the apostle, right? He was the sent one. And he is the high priest of our confession. I wouldn't want us to press this high priest one too much because that's practically what so many chapters of the book is dedicated to. But essentially, the, the, the high priest is the one who, who offers sacrifice for sin, who, who makes atonement for sin, who makes intercession for sin. Right? And there's so much about the priesthood of Christ that this book will talk about. Yeah, but does that answer your question, Steph? Yes, yes, it does. Thank you. Yeah, so God still calls apostles, and He can call you to be an apostle, not not by title that you print a flyer, put your name, Apostle Stephanie. I mean, maybe He can even call you with that, but because unfortunately, now in Nigerian setting, fortunately, um, everybody's answering the title now. 
But there is a sense in which if God calls you and sends you, that is apostolic in itself. There's a sense in which all Christians are supposed to be apostolic. All of us are supposed to have a sent mentality. When you, when you leave the church and you leave the house and you go to your workplace where Jesus is not the number one name, you're supposed to embody the mindset of one who is sent to herald the kingdom of God in this place. And you're an apostle. It's just that like you're an apostle to the marketplace. Okay. So, verse 3 to verse 6. Step. Verse 3. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who builds the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So he said in verse 3, for this one, that's Christ, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So he has compared Christ to the angels in chapter 1, right? And we saw the insufficiency of the angels in sufficiently bringing God's message to man. And the angels are, are heavily deficient. They have infirmities when it comes to passing on this great message that God has for man. But Moses classifies as one of the, as one of the apostles or prophets right, that God sent in history. And in a sense, Moses is the biggest stumbling block. Not Moses himself as a person, but everything that Moses' ministry embodied and presented to Israel is the biggest stumbling block to their accepting Jesus. And it says that Christ has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? Why? So the significant thing to note about Christ, why he's counted more worthy than Moses, is that he's the builder of God's house. Now, it's necessary for us to consider this metaphor of God's house, right? Because it's a prominent metaphor that describes the church, right? All of us know that in the New Testament. It even describes the individual believer, in a sense, as a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a prominent metaphor. And it's it's interesting that when we talk about the house of God, you know, we don't we're not referring to heaven or somewhere in the skies or somewhere in the immortal realm. When we talk about the house of God, we're referring to a physical domain. How is that possible? In Isaiah chapter 66, let's look at that quickly. I think that's the one verse that we'll digress to. Um, God himself began to address this matter of his house. Isaiah chapter 66 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. So heaven is not his house. <laughs> it's just his throne. He doesn't live in heaven. Heaven is just his office, as it were. And the earth is his footstool. He says, where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? I want you to see that when God created man, this is what he was looking for. He was looking for rest. Now, not rest in the sense that God is a restless spirit. <laughs> no, that, 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 that needs us to satisfy himself, right? Because without us, God existed. He was self-existing. But the thing is that at some point, God wanted to have children. He wanted to have children in the order of Christ, his son. 
after the image and the likeness of Christ. And his desire for those children is that they will reflect him. Now, God is locked up in the spirit realm. He's his spirit. That's how Jesus describes him. That God is spirit. And in a sense, that's part of humanity's problems in locating God because he kind of hides himself in the spirit realm. His antidote for that was that there's going to be a physical creation. And man was supposed to be at the apex of that physical creation. And because nothing physical can contain God, God gave man a spirit. He didn't make man a spirit, but God gave him a spirit. And he gave him a spirit that has the capacity to contain a measure of God. To contain a measure of God. I don't know if you remember the story of the Decapolis and the madman of, of, of Gadara. How many legions of demons were in one man? Legions of demons were in one man. And yet he was still walking around normal. Well, he wasn't normal, but <laughs> it was so the, the amount of demons that were in him that he carried around for all those years. When Jesus cast them into swine, all the swine perished within seconds. The thing that a man carried, animals could not contain for a second. There is an infinite capacity in man for God. It is a longing in all of us. It's part of our design. The one who designed us made accommodation for himself. You and I have an instinct for God. We have a yearning for God. He's our biggest satisfaction. And the biggest mistake we can make is to, is to begin to dig cisterns and begin to find our joy elsewhere because we're going to find eventually that those are not joys. That's the story of the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what leads to um, addictions, right? And bondages. Trying to find satisfaction. Trying to pour matter into eternity, essentially. Whether you use liquor or you use, um, I don't know, cigarettes or you use sex or you use sports or whatever it is. Trying to pour earthly matter into eternity. <laughs> you just realize that nothing eternal, nothing physical can satisfy void in your heart. But God is asking a question to all mankind. Where is the place of my rest? In, in a sense, he's asking you and me, where is the place? Have, have, have you prepared room for me in your heart? Or are you, are you just restless pursuing career, pursuing family, pursuing... Have you, have you prepared room for me in your heart? Where is the place of my rest? So it is not, it is not coincidence that when God created Man on the sixth day, the Bible says on the seventh day, he rested. That rest is, <laughs> is a refreshing kind of rest because that's what the Bible tells us that God rested and was refreshed. That in man, God has found a place in the physical creation where he can be at home. Now, the thing is that no man except Christ has the capacity to bear the full measure of God. It's not possible. The only way that the full measure of God can be contained is in a people, is in all of us. That's why Paul was relentless in his vision of the body of Christ and was telling us that it's a mistake if we don't pursue, if we don't do everything we can to keep the unity of the faith because God is not going to be satisfied that only one person need it at the end of the day. But God is looking for a people. Now, what we do know is that the way God began to identify his people is by the covenant that he made with Israel. 
right? Remember Deuteronomy chapter 33 or 32, I think, where he said that Jacob is my lot, that different people have different lots in the earth, but God, his portion is his people. And we've said before that the reason why God chose one nation was so that he could eventually choose all nations, right? God had to start from somewhere. He couldn't choose everybody at the same time. So he started with the covenant people with the intention that the same covenant he cut with the fathers, the same covenant he cut with Israel was going to spread through the nations. So what the writer is saying is that Moses was just an overseer of that covenant in its limited expression in Israel. Israel was not the summation, Israel as a state, as a nation, was not the summation of the, of the desire and the intention that was in God's heart because Israel was not the only nation that existed. They were simply sovereign, sovereignly elected by God. That something had to happen that would make it possible for every tribe and tongue, practically for you and I, to become included in God's house, as part of God's house. And of course, a price needed to be paid for sin. A, a, an access point into heaven needed to be made and all of that. And it was Christ who fulfilled those desires. And so the writer is saying that this house that, that is going to contain God one day on the earth and contains him in a measure today on the earth, the builder of that house is Christ. He's the one that furnishes each person with grace. He's the one that calls each person that furnishes this person with, with gifts, with grace. He's the one that creates you uniquely. He's the administrator of God's kingdom. So that's what the metaphor of a house is doing in this scripture. It says, every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. I mean, in chapter 2, the, the writers already made the case that Jesus is God, right? And it says in verse 5, And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony to those of those things which will be spoken afterwards. But Christ as a son over his own house. So he's the builder and he's the inheritor. And then he says, Whose house we are, if we hold fast the, conf the confidence and the rejoicing of hope to the end. So we find the first one of those several big ifs in the book of Hebrews. Why is there an if in this scripture? He says that we are his house. Some people's theology tells them that we are his house and full stop. There's nothing that can change that. But the writer of Hebrews is, is making a point here that we are his house if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope firm to the end. What is he saying here? What do you think? Why is this if here? What is he telling us? Or what is he telling you? Maybe something like those that are not able to... It is possible that some people would not be able to hold fast to the end. That's the that's basic, I guess. Okay. Okay, not to be picky, but is it that some people will not be able to, or is it that they will not hold fast? Mm -hmm. They will choose not to okay. hold fast. Okay. So they will okay. turn away from, from it. But the thing mm -hmm. is why, I don't know why. Okay. 
Okay, thank you. Any other thoughts? I'm thinking that basically Jesus or God is looking for people that will commit. And this commitment has to be like a long-term thing. And that's why that's why he's saying some people might not be. I'm still saying that some people might not be able to hold fast in the long term, maybe because of some issues that can come up and some, you know. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. what I'm thinking. But you know, Jesus said that apart from me, you can do nothing, right? Yeah. It means that in the in the proper analysis of things, there is none of us that can hold on if it if it depended on us. So, like one writer said before, that if the same grace that saved us did not insist on us, right, did not did not hold us fastly, then there's no way we'll continue. So, what we're seeing here is, is, is a partnership essentially that's that's going on so the reason why the writer puts an if here is something he's going to touch on subsequently which i can already hint us at he's trying to show us that because he's talking about their confession right if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end he's trying to show them he's trying to talk about our confession our believing right and he's trying to show that the nature of believing is not a one-off thing, right? That we make a statement, <laughs> a statement of faith. You know, there are many people in churches that that if you listen to their statement of faith, everything is correct, right? But there is no life flowing through them. There is no fruit coming out. In fact, it's like Jesus said to the church, um, was it like the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3? A church that has a name that is alive. For yet it is dead. The writer is trying to show us that believing is not merely a one-time confession thing. Believing is an activity that continually lays hold of God by faith. Let, let no one deceive us that, you know, once we come to God and once we come to Jesus, there is nothing else absolutely left to do. You know, someone has once said that the, that the New Testament is, is full of a big dawn done. Jesus has finished everything and he has called you. There are so many problems with holding that kind of view because even Paul didn't hold the language of assurance. It's not as though he didn't have assurance. Nobody had assurance like Paul. But he said, I, I'm, not, I'm not counting myself to have attained. I'm not, I'm not, that's not the attitude I hold. He says, but this one thing I do, right, pressing on, because the nature of true believing is that it lays hold of God continually. And so when God invites us into faith, he invites us into the work of believing, the work of traveling with him, of trusting with him until we see what he has promised in our lives come to pass. Believing is an active thing. That's what the writer is trying to say, right? He's saying, do away with this mindset of religion that says that I made a confession once upon a time. And so now it doesn't matter what I do, even if I turn my back on Jesus and go back into the synagogue, which is what he was trying to fight against with this letter, so that I can escape persecution. That is all good and all fine. Say no, that believing is a continual experience. Remember in chapter two, he said that we are being sanctified, right? 
it's possible that you meet a believer who has the same problem for 20 years. He's a believer, but after 20 years, his anger is exactly the way it was 20 years ago. What is the problem? The problem is belief is that believing has not done its work. You know, that's why it's necessary for you and I when we preach the gospel to people to not be too concerned with reading out numbers of 10,000 people were saved because we told them to say a quick prayer in two minutes. But we need to be concerned with ensuring that the people we bring to Christ have a good foundation so that they don't begin on the wrong foundation. It's not as though they will not end up being saved. It's just that it's going to be a very treacherous journey if we don't lay the proper foundation. But then this then goes on to the question, right? Because this is kind of a warning, right? Or am I reading it wrongly that this is not a warning? The reason I'm asking that question is that you, you, if you read, if you just Google the scripture and check different theologians' views on it, you'll find that most theologians don't agree that this is that this suggests what it is suggesting very plainly. But this is very clearly a warning. It's an if, it's a conditional. In programming, that's what we call it, a conditional. Right. And something will not be a warning if the thing that you are being warned against is just, you know, it would be deception if the writer is just trying to threaten you so you can become serious. <laughs> no. The only reason Jesus wants you is because the thing he's warning you about is real. Just like some people saying that um, Satan didn't really tempt Jesus. The Bible called it a temptation. If Satan could not indeed give him those things. It wouldn't have been a temptation. Right. But the question I want us to, to, to tackle is, in your view, in your understanding then, what is the consequence of not believing continually? Because that's, that's a good way to understand believing as a present continuous reality. What is the consequence of not believing continually and to the end? Because it's saying that we need to hold fast the confidence or the confession to the end. As a believer, you believed and you started well, right? What's the consequence of not believing continuously and to the end? Judas, like, Judas started like that, you know, walking with Jesus and all. But at the end of the day, he fell, he fell off. He, his heart, I mean, his heart became hardened, mm -hmm. so he looked away from Jesus. So I think that's basically what can happen to to us when our hearts become, when we don't go with Jesus anymore, when we fall away, when we fall out, we separate ourselves from God and we embrace the path of sin and sin leads to death. And that's basically what happens with Judas, yeah. Okay, yeah. You know, again, it's, it's necessary for us to quote scholars in this, our Bible study, right? Even though we are not biblical scholars, but we need to quote them because they've done, <laughs> they have labored to understand context. And in that sense, scholars do not agree that Judas was ever born again. There's no, there's no biblical evidence for that, at least in, in the way we understand scripture. And the clearest statement of the fact that Judas, even though he was a disciple of Jesus, was not really saved. You know, he never really believed, right? Is when Jesus began to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter said, you will not wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. And so Peter became zealous and said, don't just wash my feet. 
wash my whole body. And Jesus began to say to him that anybody who has taken a bath is clean and does not need to take another bath but just needs his feet to be washed. He says, all of you are clean but one. So that's a very clear, direct statement uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. that Judas had not undergone regeneration. And you see, that's what a lot of people say when they come to this kind of scripture, right? That, and I'm not trying to attack the position. I'm just trying to lay it out for us because we will try to prayerfully and faithfully interpret the scriptures we're seeing it, but it's necessary for us to see the opinion that is held by most very credible people. A lot of people say that if a Christian turns back from God, that's the proof that they were never really a Christian. You know? But I, I find that to be, to be plausible, yes, but also incredible. How can God give the gift of eternal life? How can God allow you to taste of the powers of the age to come, which is what Hebrews talks about um, in Hebrews chapter 6? How can God give that to you if you didn't really believe? I mean, it's not completely implausible, right? Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, if you remember, or no, Matthew chapter 7, right? That many will come and say, Lord, we cast out devils in your name. But Jesus said, <laughs> I never knew you. So I'm not completely denying, right, that that is not plausible. I think that there is some biblical basis for it, but to me, it leaves way too many questions open in scripture. It, it forces a difficult interpretation of different parts of scripture, especially the book of Hebrews, that are much simpler and clearer if you interpret it straight up for what they're saying. What they're saying, and which the writer is going to buttress in the next verse, is that it is possible, right, that one who started believing stops believing. It's very clear. It's possible. It's not as though the person never believed before. It's not as though the person's believing was not true. But it's possible. Now, I need to give us a real-life example because... Um, okay. Sorry, did you want to say something, Stephanie? No, I mean, I was just thinking about the list of people that Paul mentioned. I think it was in Tim when he was talking to Timothy or Zetitis. He mentioned the mask, that the mask or, you know, something like that, a name like that was was with him, but he turned his back on him and went into the world, you know, and it just, he, that guy probably believed at some point, but something made him turn away. So he is basically saying that there's a school of thought that says he never believed in the first place. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there are scriptures that also suggest that, because when you read Jude, for example, when he's talking about the apostates, right? He says that they were foreordained for this kind of destruction. Even, even John tells us that, you know, the fact that they came from us but left us is a proof that they were never really of us. And so, of course, you can, you can find those scriptures, right? And it's necessary that we know that those scriptures are there so that we don't end up holding too much of a dogmatic position about this. But it's also necessary to see the very plain scriptures. And the, the verses, I'm taking time to explain this now so that when we get to the verses below, it becomes clear what the writer is saying because it's like the verses below are much clearer than this, right? That it's possible to believe and stop believing. Now, you may have heard of the name Billy Graham, right? Of course, not you may have. All of us have heard of the name Billy Graham. But you probably may have never heard of the name Charles Templeton. 
or have you. He was a Canadian televangelist. He was yeah. a contemporary. He was a contemporary of Billy Graham. Right? They 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 were the they were the rave of televangelism in the 1930s and in the 1940s. In fact, um, Charles Templeton had a program called. You know what it means for you to be. I don't need to explain too much. You know what it means when we say you are a contemporary of Billy Graham. Right. But you can you can go to Wikipedia and read about Charles Charles Templeton. Um, he he kept doubting. In fact, everything that Hebrews is saying is exactly what happened to Charles Templeton. He began by drifting. You know what chapter two warned against. You know drifting is that you, you begin to doubt the word of God. You know you begin to hear it, but you don't allow it affect your heart. You don't you don't allow it challenge you. Begin to say hmm. Begin to find fault in it. Maybe even begin to read scientific textbooks that expose all the possible, in their view, weaknesses. Begin to poison your feet, drifting. Begin to stop attending church. Um, you begin to stop listening to the word of God. And and live and drifting ultimately leads to unbelief. Right. And essentially, he died an atheist, a tele-evangelist, who was born again, who confessed Jesus, who led many to Christ, who was a contemporary of Billy Graham. He died an atheist. And he didn't die young. He died in 2001. So somebody was preaching in the 1930s and 40s, died in 2001. He didn't die young. Right. It says that we are the house of God if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. I asked us, what is the consequence of not believing continuously? Well, there's no simple answer to the question. My answer, which I was able to arrive at prayerfully, at least so far, is that there are two streams, right, of consequences. There's the immediate consequence, and then there's the future co consequence. If the immediate consequence of drifting is not checked, is not corrected, and it continues, is going to lead to the future consequence. The reason why many people do not believe that it's possible to lose their salvation is that they're only looking at the immediate consequence. And when they look at the immediate consequence, they don't see what the problem is. You know, there are many illnesses that, if only you can de um, <laughs> detect them early, you can stop them from being a terminal disease. But if you are not able to detect them early or treat them early, they're going to become incurable. That's the kind of sickness that unbelief is. Unbelief can be checked before it deteriorates to apostasy. So what is the immediate consequence of not believing? The immediate consequence is that we'll fail to enter God's rest. Now, one thing you'll notice as we do chapter 3 and chapter 4 is that God's rest has at least three or four definitions. right? And we've already seen the first part of God's rest, which is which is, which is the fact that God rested from his creative enterprise. He rested, right, as, as Genesis chapter 1 tells us. Um, but another dimension of God's rest is the freedom that God gives us from restlessness, from anxiety, right, from, from a life of, of wandering, from a life on the run, as it were. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that you are no longer strangers to the commonwealth, of Israel. Have you seen a Christian who's like a stranger, who, who does not know their identity in God, 
running from pillar to post, a victim of anxiety. That's a sign that you have not continued believing. And that's the immediate consequence that, that yes, you are a Christian, yes, you are saved, yes, you are going to heaven, but, but the thing that God wants to put on display is not going to find expression in your life. The righteousness, the peace, the joy that is in the Holy Ghost, that is the mark of any kingdom person, it's just not going to flow through your life, but you're a Christian. That's one of that's the immediate consequence of unbelief. Now, if that state continues indefinitely and deteriorates, the future or long-term consequence, if it is not treated, is that you're going to also fail to enter God's rest. And that rest is not the rest of expressing God's life, it's the rest of eternal life. Right? Because that's also another definition of God's rest. By the time you go to Hebrews chapter 4, and it tells us that there remains a rest, even though we have come into rest in God, <laughs> there remains a rest. There's something we are still looking for. There's something we are still holding on for. We do not take it for granted that that is a possibility. Paul says, I do not count myself to have attained, but I, but I, I press on. I press on. Okay. Do you think that does justice to, to this verse? Any thoughts, questions? I think it does. It does. It, it does justice to it. I feel like this holding on to the end can be tough considering external circumstances. And a lot of things can make people like just look away and say, like it's something like uh the the miracle not coming on time you know this whole delay thing you know like jesus is not working so i'm just going to leave this bit and doesn't yeah. mean that they were not in in it at all you know because no. i feel like they were in it they were invested they were committed however the wind blew and mm -hmm. they just couldn't hold on yeah you know that's the danger that the that the audience, the writer is writing to, that's the danger they are facing. If you remember the introduction to this book, right? Mm -hmm. that, that they came to Christ in the Roman Empire and it was wonderful. And then intense persecution started. If you imagine that you couldn't send your kids to school just because you were Christian. And not only that, imagine that as a Jew, you could remedy the situation by simply just identifying as a Jew and going to the synagogue and denying Christ in the door and then getting in. And then everything is back to the social order that you know. And that's why his his focus is, see, I know that you, I know that the pressure is much, but forget about that breakthrough and that miracle and look at Jesus. Consider him. Consider him. Of course, like there are many things he can do for you. There are many things he can say to you. He can take away your pain. He can do so many things. He can give you breakthrough. But Never arrive at the point where breakthrough becomes your God. It says, consider him. Consider him. Right. And like we said, um, salvation is not an epileptic thing, right? God is, does not change his mind every second. That, oh, Stephanie has, does not have faith today, so she's out. <laughs> and then Stephanie has faith tomorrow. And then she's back in, right? It's very hard. I believe a Christian can lose their salvation, but I believe that it is very, very hard for it to happen. Right? So God does not kick you out just because you have you don't have faith anymore. Some Christians can can stay in a state of unbelief for twenty years and still be Christians. 
by the mercy of God. You know, that's why he's a merciful and faithful high priest. It's just that your life won't express the kingdom values, right? You won't enter that rest where you know who God is, where you know what it means for God to fight for you and win your battles and be the one who lifts your head. But you'll still be a Christian. But, but the burden of Hebrews is not to tell us that, okay, you know, it's possible for you to go for 50 years drifting and you'll still be fine. That's not what he... That's not the kind of mindset because he's saying that kind of mindset is really dangerous. That if that's the hope <laughs> with which you come into the game, that you can drift for 50 years and still be fine, then it's possible that you can just drift away. Right? So God knows that we are weak and he knows that there are times of weakness. Like we said last week, he knows that we are prone to drifting. And we're going to see the antidote to that, right? He knows that we are prone to drifting and that's why Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. But we must remember that we are not supposed to be abusers of the grace of God, that there is help in him, that every time we turn to him, we can find help. And if we continuously ignore this, this great and beautiful work that he does for us in the heavens, then there is, not, there is no other sacrifice that is left, okay? So let's read from verse 7 to 13, Stephanie. Thank you, Joshua. So before I forget, praying this prayer, Lord, help me to, to remain in you or something like insist on me. Is it, in, is it okay? Or would that be counted as a creed or just a confession? It, it, anything that, it, that qualifies as prayer is a good prayer. You know, I can give you examples of people who drifted. I don't know if you know this hymn, Thou Fountain of All Blessing, you know, something like this. Yes. Uh, very beautiful hymn. Yes. The, the man who wrote it, if you like one of the one of the stanzas in the hymn says that that my heart is prone to drifting. I'm prone to wander, yeah. It's prone to wander. That just just keep me, keep me. Mm. I you know the man actually drifted and wandered. Jesus. And then in his old age, at least so so the story has it, from credible sources. In his old age, he was on the bus and he heard a, a woman, an old woman singing his, his hymn. Oh my God. And he turned to her and said, that, do, do you know that it's me, this wretched miserable man that wrote that hymn? And so she led him back to Christ. Wow. So because of that prayer, God was faithful mm. to keep him. But you see, when I was reading, the Holy Spirit said to me that, it is true that you are prone to drift and to wander. But the good news of the gospel is that your proneness to drift and to wander is not as strong as the power and the ability of the Holy Spirit to, keep right? you. Mm. to produce discipline and self-control. Mm. So as much as we acknowledge our infirmity, <laughs> there's no other option. You are going to find yourself so weak many times. Mm. You just learn that you are weak and acknowledge it. Mm. But the nature of faith is that we must also hold on and say, Holy Ghost, there's a power in you. There's a power in you. There's a dynamis. I'm not supposed to be a slave to this thing all my days. There's, there's, and by this thing, I mean sin. Mm. You know? I remember as like growing up as a teenager, because I didn't really know God, I was convinced that it's not possible to be sexually pure. And when I say sexually pure, I mean like masturbation and all of this stuff. Because the struggle was real and intense. And you see, that's where Satan wants you to reach. And as mm. long as that's your gospel, 
there's no way out for you. And that's why Paul says, reckon, reckon, reckon that you are dead indeed to sin and alive to God. And so, so God, I know that I'm prone to drifting, but I know that there's a power in you. And, and I pray that by your grace, let my life, let my own life be the testimony of the power that is in you. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. I, I know that on this journey, there needs to be discipline. I'm not even going to say, oh, because I'm prone to drifting and because mm. there's grace, so therefore, let's, let's just be going jolly, jolly. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. He, he wouldn't, mm. it, like that's a military term. Mm. Keep yourselves in the love of God. There's discipline. Peter said, add to your faith, add to your faith knowledge. I know you have faith and to a large extent, your faith is enough, but just in case you want to get more, add to your faith. Mm. For me, I'm not going to stand because I'm strong. No, I'm going to stand because he holds me. Mm. But I acknowledge also that his Holy Spirit can help me. Mm. His Holy Spirit can help me. My life is not going to glorify sin by the grace of God. My life is not going to glorify drifting. My, my, my life is going to glorify the ability of God to keep, to keep, to keep, to keep. So I can tell you that I've been begging God also <laughs> in the past two weeks. Keep us, keep us, keep us, keep us. That's, that's, that's been my prayer the past two weeks. Keep us, keep us. So this Bible study is getting longer, but we really need to finish. Okay, sorry. Hebrews chapter three. Um, no, it's fine. I just need to take permission from you that we might finish a bit late, maybe ten minutes late. Okay. Okay. Uh, by the way, does somebody else in the audience have <laughs> just checking, or do you agree with everything we're saying so far? Yeah, I do. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so from the 7 to 13, stuff. Okay, therefore, <clears throat> as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts they have and they have not known my ways so i swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest beware brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living god but exhort one another daily while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Okay. So you can see it in plain English, right? Yes. There is, it is a possibility of departing from the living God. And the writer has examples to show. Anyway, that's not our emphasis here. Well, we'll start from the seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you, so this is the antidote to drifting, the antidote to unbelief. How do you respond when you hear the word of God? This is something the Holy Spirit has been teaching me. You know, it's possible for you to, to read the Sermon on the Mount and you read, blessed are the pure in heart, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then just say, Kai, this is not possible. You know, or you just try to rationalize it or allegorize it or you feminize it if there's any such word. You know, try to find, you know, Jesus it doesn't really mean that. <laughs> you know? What's going to happen to you is that you will never even come close to being pure with such, with such a mindset. If we had continued reading um, Isaiah chapter 66, we only read verse 1, right, where, where he asked us, like, where is the place of my rest, remember? Okay, maybe we should go back there quickly. Isaiah 66, the very last chapter. So he says, and where is the place of my rest? Verse 2 says, for all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. Then he begins to show us where his rest is. Says, but on this one, so his rest is in a person, in a man, in a people. On this one will I look, on him who is poor. So you see where I got my begging God from, right? <laughs> you know, some people's theology doesn't allow them beg God; they just proclaim and decree. But God says that I have a love language, I have a weak spot. When I find a poor and a contrite spirit, I ask. It just it just touches me it just touches me i cannot overlook it you know it's possible that you can be the prodigal son you have taken your father's money you have spent it you have you have you have slept with 100 women but the day you hear the voice of god if you if you humble your heart and you tremble at the word of god god says that kai he won't be able to turn his back on you and thank god for that songwriter right who was able to say to God, you know, see this, see, this is my heart. I can see already prophetically that it is prone to drifting. So when that day comes, find me, find me. He says, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit who trembles at my word. Friends, this is the antidote to unbelief, to the kind of drifting that can lead to, you know, complete despondency in faith. The answer is, what do you do when you hear the word of God? Do you allow it to challenge you? Right? Do you allow it to change your mind? Maybe you are going to do X and then you hear the word of God. Are you allowing it to do something? You know, I think I just need to jump ahead of myself because of our time, right? You know, is the person that makes an effort to do the word of God that receives help. So Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit helpeth our infirmities, right? And you might, and some people think that these things are automatic, that you automatically become a mature Christian or you automatically become a praying Christian. Well, if that is the case, then all Christians would have been praying Christians, right? Because the Bible clearly says that the Spirit helps our infirmities. So if the Spirit helps our infirmities, then why does everybody not pray? Well, you see, you need to understand what helps means. The word help there means that he's coming to assist you in something that you are willing to do. Meaning that help is the kind of thing that meets you on the road. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that meets. So once there's any, any trace of desire that Holy Spirit, I want to pray or I want to pray. Do you realize that Jesus never taught his disciples to pray until they said, Master, teach us. As important as prayer is. Because he was trying to show them that on this journey, I need your will to come along. So the Spirit helps us, and the help of the Spirit is found when we when we begin the journey. Right. 
So if he if he wakes you up and says, just pray, just, just pray this night or just pray this morning. It might be waiting for him to drag you from the bed. <laughs> but he has already done something by waking you up. And you might be sleepy, your head might be turning, but if you start, you will then begin to experience help. Of course, this is just an example. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is going to be waking you up in the midnight, right? I'm just using an example to say that he helps. This is how, this is the cure for drifting, the cure for unbelief. If you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. How does hardening happen? You see, hardening is not something that happens all at once. And that's why it is very, very um, subtle and treacherous and subversive. Hardening is, 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 is the outcome of a continual refusal to act on the word of God. A continual refusal to submit on the word of God. You just keep hearing it, but you don't make plans to do it. You don't even make plans to hear it again and again so that you can be sure you really heard it. You don't make plans to, to, to follow it. You know? Instead, you begin to find pastors. <laughs> of course, when I say you, I'm not speaking of any of us on Discord. I'm just speaking generally. You begin to find pastors that convince you, that try to show you how you know, God is not so upset about immorality. We're the ones who are so upset about it. Right. That's, that's how hardening starts. When instead of allowing the word of God challenge you, rebuke you, reprove you, comfort you, restore you in times of failure and weakness, you decide to rationalize it and ignore it. And like that, an evil heart is cultivated so that what began as drifting ends up as unbelief. But it is to the contrite heart, to the one who is poor in spirit, that God looks upon those who tremble at the word of God. Right. Friends, what it means to believe is to, is to consider carefully and prayerfully and to allow, <laughs> lay hold on the word of God until he lays hold on you. Yes, lay hold on it. It doesn't matter how long that process is. As long as you are in it, that's fine. Lay hold on the word of God until he lays hold on you. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 35, right? That beware of the light you have. Have you read that scripture before? Beware of the light you have, lest it becomes darkness. Luke eleven thirty-five. 35. It says the lamp of the body is the eye, verse 34. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. Meaning that that little spark of light that you have, if you are not faithful to it, maybe you may not even have deep rema of the word of God or deep revelation, but there's, there's just something small that you have understood. If you're not faithful to it, if you don't allow it to affect your heart, if you don't make plans to practice it, a time will come when you won't be able to. That's what it means. That if you fail to act on truth, a time comes when you won't be able to. So, um, you know when somebody says, I won't do something and I can't do something. Those are two different things. If you say, I won't do something, it means I can do it, but I, I won't. I use my will not to. I, I can't, it's a place of complete helplessness. It means that the ability has been withdrawn from you because you ignored the light for so long. 
And that's what happens when we do not pay attention to the word of God. I'm saying that to say that that's what the writer means by I swore in my wrath that they will not enter my rest. It's not saying that God released his hot temper, you know, because when we read the word of God, we often think of it in those terms as a very hot temper that, you know, if it blows up on you on the bad day, on the wrong day, then you might just lose your salvation. Now look at the process. He says, do not harden your heart, verse 8, as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me. So they tested me, they tried me for 40 years. 40 years. He says, therefore, I was angry with that generation. Now this King James, this new King James uses the word angry. But a better translation of this word is I was I was grieved with that generation. That's actually what's written here. I was grieved with that generation. And Paul tells us that it's possible that the Holy Spirit can be grieved in a believer today. And that's how it begins, right? Have you tried to do something before? Maybe you offended somebody and you refused to apologize. And then the Holy Spirit is now grieved in your heart. You know, it's possible for you to ignore it and still be speaking in tongues, and try to shout louder so that, it, so that you can feel the anointing. But <laughs> our virtue of sincerity is all we have in our dealings with the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to maintain the same intensity of burning and flame, we need to learn how to be honest before him, how to be open before him, how to recognize that, wait, something is not right in my heart. The Holy Spirit is grieved. This thing I did, he doesn't like it. This thing I'm about to do, he doesn't like it. This thing I said, he doesn't like it. He's grieved. And bring yourself to the place where you don't perpetuate that state of grieving, where your life does not become a continual grieving of the Holy Spirit, willingly, without any plans to change. So the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit warns us. He brings signals and promptings into our hearts. And it is only when we ignore the warnings and the grieving of the Holy Spirit. And for Israel, it was 40 years. Wow. How merciful God is. And God said, the problem is these people's heart. They, they have not set their heart to be steadfast with me, to be faithful with me, to follow through in every season. And therefore, I swore in my rod. The rod of God is the moral justice of God. And that's what happens to us. Like when you read the word of God, in a, in a large sense, the, like the word of God is actually the natural working of things. You can even read the word of God as like the law of cause and effect. That the one who continues to ignore truth and doesn't act on it is going to arrive at a place one day where they realize that the power to act on it has left them because of the moral justice of God. The thing is that you and I don't know what that distance is. Right. So there's no need to play with the distance and say, how much can I test the wrath of God before I know it's elastic limit? God can decide to that the elastic limit for Stephanie is 75 years and the elastic limit for Saul is three years. You don't know that. And we don't know, right? And so it says in verse 11, I swore in my wrath that I will not enter my rest. And we see that rest here is the promise of the promised land, essentially. Like we said, the rest of God means different things depending on the context. So in this context, the rest here is the rest of the promised land. And in, if we are to translate it into the New Testament, the promised land is the 
riches of the life that is available in Christ. So I don't believe that even at this point, he's, when he says they shall not enter my rest, I don't believe that he's necessarily saying that, that eternally they are doomed. No, no. It's not that easy to lose your salvation. No, it's not that easy. What he's saying is that God wants more than just to take you to heaven. God wants my life and your life to overflow with righteousness, with peace, with joy in the Holy Ghost, with, with a lovely restedness in him. And that is possible that we never enter that rest. We never become the thing for which God created us to become. Right? Yeah. But it's now verse 12 that now tells us that, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And he now tells us the second antidote, which is the fellowship of believers. Exhort one another, that is, comfort one another build up one another right so the good news is that if you stay in community there's there's a almost 100 percent guarantee that unbelief will not be your end if you stay in community and if you know that it means you should be aware when satan has stirred up your emotions stirred up your environment so much and the solution he recommends is you know what don't go to church <laughs> don't go to bible study don't join corporate prayer and you do that one week, one month, one year, three years. No. As long as you don't allow yourself, because down the line in Hebrews, he's going to tell us not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together. It is, it is a weapon against unbelief that when we come into the house of God, which is the fellowship of believers, something, you know, we looked at this in the laying of hands, right? Something from your brother's spirit, something from your sister's spirit will just rub off on your spirit and it will make a difference okay do you have any thoughts on this it's class me very clear thank you Joshua. okay so in the final few minutes we have let's just read um the last few verses and say a word or two on them and close verse 14 now to verse 19. okay from verse 14 for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry? Forty years. Was it not... Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did, who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Yeah, thank you. Um, ideally, if, if we had more time. Chapter 3 is not where we're supposed to stop, right? Because as you can see, it's as though his thoughts are abruptly broken. He's setting up this example to show us that now that we're in Christ, we have entered into a certain kind of rest, but there still remains a rest. And we must not take it for granted that our journey of believing has to continue. But I think this final few verses were quite clear. First of all, it tells us that we are partakers of Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. Right, that 
We are, we are in fellowship with Christ. We are in league with Christ. But then he adds another if to it, showing us again that believing for the believer must include a continual activity of faith, right? It's not a one-time, one-off thing. And so that's why if you meet a believer who has stopped believing, that's, that's a gospel project. Don't allow yourself to believe, ah, but this person goes to church, this person made a confession, so they are fine. No, no, no. Content for them in prayer. Bring again the gospel of Jesus to them because that's a slippery state for anyone to be in. And when you notice in your own heart, right, that unbelief is beginning to overwhelm you, you know, all of us are prone to this. Remember what he said. Begin to hear again. And when you hear, don't harden your heart. And if hearing is not helping you, come into the community, come into the house of God. Call your friend, call your brother, call your sister. You know, and if you, it's not so much that they are preaching to you or that they have wise words for you, it's just that there's, there's, just, there's just security in that space. Right? That's what it means by exhort one another daily. It's not so much preach to one another. The word there is actually comfort. You can even just go to a fellow believer's house and just sleep and just cry out your sorrows. Just be there, sharp. Don't go to an unbeliever's house. <laughs> just be. It's not necessarily the fact that you are speaking in tongues because the Holy Spirit knows that it's not every time like that, like that, that you can be doing that. And so don't feel that just because you cannot be at 100% top game, therefore... You need to let everything go. No, no, no. Right? Stay in the fellowship of believers. So to, to summarize what we've looked at in Hebrews 3 and what he's saying, the main thing he's trying to do is to show us what believing is. And by doing that, show us what unbelief is. Unbelief in the life of a Christian, which is a possibility, is a failure to act on the truth. A failure to respond to the word of God, a continued failure to respond. Not that he's falling and rising or, you know, failing and trying, no, but that he's just completely failing to respond. You know, if you even attempt to respond, some people, when they hear Apostle Rome, for example, saying that <laughs> if you don't pray for 10 hours, you are, you, are, you are like Batman or something like this, they get offended, you know. And then they now start finding a theology to explain that it's not by how long you pray, it's by the quality, you know. You know, when you hear those kind of things that challenge your faith, why not try to do it? There's a 100% there's a chance that you're going to fail, probably. Right? But then it is in failing that you now realize how much you need help. And as long as you are in that state where you realize your need for help, then, then you are healthy. But the one who doesn't even try to do, the one who just writes it up that this, this, this legalistic people, this, you know, the one who doesn't even try to do, is going to come to a point where they, are, they will actually not be able to do. Eventually, that's what unbelief is. And here in the final few verses, the writer equates believing to obeying. Verse 18 says, and to whom did his word that they will not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. So he's exchanging obeying for believing. And obeying there means, means responding, right? To go from hearing to obeying. To be able to do that, we need, like we said, we need to sit carefully and prayerfully with the word of God. We need to meditate on it. We need to make plans to obey it. 
And after we have made those plans, we need to commit it to God. You know, like there's so much you learn when you try to obey God. And, it, and you might fail in that enterprise initially, but that's a good thing itself. The fact that you, are, that, that you are making plans to obey is where God wants you to be. Where he doesn't want you to be is where you are not making plans to obey. And we've seen also that at its tail end, at the ultimate future long-term end, unbelief, if it's not checked, can lead to departing from the living God and failing to enter his rest. Whatever that means, if you are in the camp that denies that this means losing your salvation, whatever it means, failing to enter God's rest does not sound like anything that any Christian should want to aim for. And we have seen that the cure for unbelief is to allow the word of God to affect our hearts. Right? Rather than allegorize the word of God, we are supposed to fix our hearts permanently on it. And allow the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit of the Word of God in us. In summary, the message is what the Holy Spirit says that today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Yes, I pray that the Spirit of God will help us to be a people that tremble at the Word of God. Amen. Yeah. So much rest on this that when that when 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 God is faithful to whisper to us, when He's faithful to bring us counsel, that it may be it may be harsh, it may be painful, it may be not what we expect, but we, we would always have the virtue of humility towards God's word and say, God, if this is your word, then produce it in me. And I trust God that He would help us in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Joshua, sorry, just one more thing. I've come across a lot of people who say things like trying to, and you know, I'm a Christian. I pray. However, I only pray when I need something. So it's like trying to enjoy the best of both worlds. And then they say things to people like you, that you're just too serious. That Christianity is simple. Even Paul said the simplicity of the gospel. <laughs> I suppose it's simple. Why are you making it so difficult? God wants us to enjoy our lives. Would you say that kind of walk is falling and rising or departing? I don't even know where to classify this. That's, that is departing. Um, like the next time somebody tells you that, the gospel is simple. Hmm? Ask the person to explain the Trinity. <laughs> That how how is God three in one and yet one? Like, ask the person to explain it. Then the person will, will realize that they need to revisit the word simple in that verse, right? Um, you know, how do you know that you are that you are being deceived? You know, one one thing we didn't touch on was what the writer calls the deceitfulness of sin. Of sin, yeah. Right, which is when sin now begins, and that's how sin hardens your heart. That if sin wasn't deceptive, it probably wouldn't harden your heart. How do you know you are being deceived is when anything whatsoever convinces you that you need to stop pressing into God. Yeah. That's how Satan comes. That you need to stop praying. That your own is too much. You know? They are not praying. They sound like they stop. They are praying, <laughs> but when they need something. Well, I must say, I must say, to be honest with you, anything that makes a Christian praise is <laughs> a good thing. At least in my own experience, that's how God sees it. <laughs> It's not perfect, but if you are sharp praying, then let's just leave you. You know, God will help you one day. Anything that makes a Christian pray is a good thing. Even if it's breakthrough, you are praying for Monday night. As long as 
you are in the place where you have finally discovered that is God I need for life, then you are you are getting closer to what it means to be a man, and that's fine. Okay. Right. Anything that makes a Christian pray, anything is a good thing. That's why even if it's suffering that to make a Christian pray, God doesn't mind. If it is uh, needs, it's just that at some point you you will need to answer you know the question of what do I really want in my work with God. Yeah. And the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about maturity in this book. In a sense, this book is also about it's like the book of James. It's about going into maturity. When you begin to go into maturity, you begin to realize some of the foundational things we've been talking about. That the only reason you and I were created was for God. And when I wake up in the morning, the question is, how can my life bring in pleasure? And because God is spirit, there's no other way I can do that but in prayer. And the first purpose of prayer is for intimacy. It's not for getting things. Jesus, Jesus, when he taught to pray, he said, our father. You can preach a 15-part series on just those two sentences. Mm. Our father, because when everything fails, <laughs> when every, you know, our generation has not seen war, for example, where all the property and the degrees that you are fighting for are just burnt to ashes. And all you have is your life. Mm. When you are in that place, you will know that our Father is all you need. Mm. That whether there's food in your stomach or there's money in your bank account, if you have our Father. You just realize that at the basic, at the very fundamental, and that's what Christianity is concerned with. Many things can meet your need. Though. You, can, you can have a rich uncle that meets your need. Christianity, yes, is concerned with those but those things are secondary. What Christianity is concerned about is the things that are the foundation, mm. the things that are fundamental. And as much as you pursue everything else, which we must do, actually, because in the Lord's Prayer, he, he actually got to deliberate matters. Mm. Right? So as much as we must pursue those things, the richness, you know, when you look at two Christians, you can see that one has a depth with God. For, like for me, that's what I want. I know that it's nice to raise your hand and tell people for, and you realize that in Jesus' life, all the miracles he did when he was on the cross, none of them came and stood by him. Hmm. As much as I want power, I want to move in power, I want riches. No, that's not my biggest desire. My, that's not my biggest desire. I was praying this earnestly last night. No, that God, this is not where I want to, this is not it. No. Hmm. I want my biggest desire to be that I know God because mm. that's why I was created. That's why I was created. Paul says that I may know him. I was created for fellowship with him. I want my intimacy with God to be the thing that stands out. I want it to be the thing that motivates my praying. If you see me praying mm. for nations, if you see mm. me praying for, it's not, <laughs> it's, it's because of the Father. I didn't come there to pray for nations, but as I, so I was talking to him, I noticed that nations were on his heart. Mm. Of course, many mighty things will happen, but God, let all those mighty things always be secondary. Because mm. the worst place you can be is that you have those mighty things and you lose God. Mm. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world mm, and he loses his soul? I, I can tell you that it's possible that God can allow you taste of it a bit. You know, when he just withdraws his grace and then you see yourself with everything you prayed for, but there's no mm. God, you can't find mm. him anywhere. And that's when you realize how fruitless it is to have everything but not have God. Mm. 
And that's my prayer for us in the study of the book of Hebrews. I know that as a Bible study group, we're struggling a bit with our hunger and our <clears throat> desire for these things. But, but my prayer is that we'll really become God's message to a generation. Amen. Yeah, that the life of Christ will so work in us that um, yeah, that will become conduits of God's life. And that every good thing, of course, that God has for us will follow. Amen. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.